It's wonderful to see you all. Has your heart been captured by Jesus? Does he dominate your horizons? Every one of us makes plans. Uh, We've all got goals that we're working towards. Uh, Sometimes they're just extremely short ones, like uh, what we're doing for lunch today. Uh, Afterwards, you've thought about that already. Anyone got plans uh, for the rest of the day? Yeah, so Katie, there you go, well done. Some of us are just planning the doctor's visits for this week. Uh, I know that's... Yeah, <laughs> Katie. <laughs> uh, you might have medium-term plans, you know, the kind of question you have to prepare for interviews. You know, what, what, are, your, what are your five-year goals? You know, where do you see yourself in five years? And they want you to say, working for you, loving every moment of it. I want... Yeah, anyway... Uh, But often our plans are long-term plans. So you have the 10-year plan, the 20-year plan, the retirement plan. They're the kind of plans that you have to uh, set a long way in advance, where you have to put goals and markers along the way that you're going to steadily work towards making whatever the kind of the big goal is at the end of it a reality. Uh, I'm not just talking about dreams. Uh, I mean, we all have dreams and some of us have Grand dreams, you know, that, that dream of complete financial security and living life in luxury as we walk along that beach collecting shells in Hawaii where we live now with that yacht. Uh, that's our yacht that's there, parked over there, the good one, the big one. Um, I mean, that'd be pretty nice, wouldn't it? That's a dream. But, but long-term plans are what you have to make to make dreams a reality. Uh, you, uh, the gurus of both the business world and of the self-help world, um, both say you have to plan in this kind of long-term kind of way if you're to ever achieve anything substantial in life. Uh, in business terms, if you're ever to amount to anything, that is anything financially, if you're to have a big portfolio, or in self-help terms, if you're to ever find true meaning and satisfaction in your life. And when you listen to the gurus of both kinds, they kind of, they make a logical sense. If you want to go from A to Z, well, you've got a plan to go through B and C and D and E and everything else in between, right? You've got to work out the steps. Sensible thing to do. Wise thing to do. The trouble is when it comes to God. He warns us about the danger of making such plans. Uh, he's not saying don't do it, but there's a danger to it. In the book of James, uh, James says in chapter 4, Now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we'll go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why, you don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we'll do live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, they're sinning. Now, he's not saying don't plan. In fact, the book, uh, the Bible is full of advice for planning ahead. The book of Proverbs we'll be looking at later in the year in third term. It's full of such wisdom. Uh, Jesus says, if you're going to build a tower, uh, make sure you've got enough money to do the whole job because you don't want to build half a tower and not have a roof on it. Uh, if you're going to go and make war against someone, make sure you've got a big enough army to conquer them. So James, James isn't saying don't plan or don't dream, but he is warning us to be very careful that just because you have 
the big dream or even a small dream, a modest one, or that you've created a wonderful plan that it will ever come about. That is the evil of pride which leads to boasting he's warning about. And the reason that he's so strong, why he says that kind of thinking is evil and foolish, is because it fails to understand two fundamental realities. One, you cannot plan for every contingency. I mean, just think about it. The world does not conform to your wishes. I mean, you might hope that it does, that the world is there for you to fulfill your dreams and, and fall into line with your plans. It doesn't work like that. You're just a mist, and mists get blown around by the wind, right? Uh, not even the people in your life will conform to your wishes. The ones who love you, they don't always do it. Our plans are always going to be interrupted and thwarted, and therefore anything we ever plan for is only ever going to be tentative, right? Uh, I hope this will happen. I'll plan for it to happen. It's wise to plan for it, but it might not. And the second reality, the fundamental reality that makes the long-term planning um, a problem is that it's God, God who directs the future. So what uh, should we say when we make plans is, if the Lord wills, then we'll do this or that and make this money or go to that city. Because he's the one who actually has all of the future in his hands. He's the one who knows all of the contingencies. He's never pushed around. Jesus says not even a sparrow falls to the ground without God's saying so. But that means something, therefore, about when God makes plans. When he makes plans, they're not tentative, they're not uncertain, not even the very, very extreme long-term ones. They're not uncertain because he knows what he's doing and he knows what he's bringing about. He's got it all worked out and he's got a certain glorious future that he has planned. Now, last week, as we started thinking about the Great Commission and making disciples, we're getting there, uh, making disciples of all mission, of all nations that Jesus gave after his resurrection, the commission that he gave to his whole church, he's given to each one of us to be someone who's a disciple maker. Um, uh, we, we asked the first question of why. Why should we bother? Why, why should we devote our lives to doing that, going and making disciples, especially when it's really difficult and daunting and scary and um, often frustrating? And we saw the beginning of an answer to that question of why in Jesus' opening statement, because all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. So go make disciples. And we saw something of what that means. Jesus is Lord in everything. He's got the supremacy. It means he's our Lord. So when he says you should just go and do it because the king says. But we also saw something of his power, the power that's in his hands, which means that every element of this created order is under his direction. But not only that, we also saw that he holds the destiny of every single individual person in his hands. Where we stand both with God both now and eternity is bound up with Jesus. But I want to push that idea a little bit further today about Jesus' authority and ask, what does he intend to do with it? I mean, if you've got all power and you can make decisions, what, what are you going to do with that kind of power? What are you going to bring about? You can make the long-term plan that's going to get there, that will bring the dream about. Does he have a long-term plan that he's working towards? And if so, what is it? Because if we understand what the goal of the universe is that God has instilled into it, then we can understand what we've been made for and our place in it. 
and why he saved us and what life really should be on about. And unlike the business and self-help gurus who promise the world but cannot ever deliver, who tell us that the way to find true satisfaction and joy is to make good long-term plans to achieve the dreams that we've got because, in fact, we're the centre of the universe, we're going to discover, in fact, that the opposite is true, that the universe is made for someone else's glory and not my own. And I'll never find true satisfaction or joy until I start to live for him and not for myself. So we're thinking about God's long-term plans, what they are, and why he's given Jesus all authority in heaven and earth. And to do it, I want to take us on a very quick ride through the Old Testament. And I want to do that because in Matthew's gospel, more than any of the other gospels, he shows Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament. He keeps saying, as the scripture says, as the prophets foretold. And in particular, what he does is present Jesus as the fulfillment of three Old Testament figures or characters which explain everything that he's on about and, and what it is that God's bringing about in the future. Three Old Testament figures that God has promised would come one day uh, and each of these characters in the Old Testament has an ambition and a goal to which they're driving. Okay, And, and the three characters are the Christ, the suffering servant and the son of man. So the first one is the Christ. See, Christ isn't a surname. It's not you know, Jesus Christ, the son of Joseph and Mary Christ, and you know Joseph was the son of I don't know, Heli Christ or whoever he was. Um, uh, Christ is a title. It's a, a title that's given in the Old Testament. Uh, Christ is a Greek word. A New Testament is written in Greek. Uh, it's the translation of a Hebrew word, Messiah. Uh, and if you translate it into English properly, uh, it translates as the anointed one, someone who's had oil tipped over their head. Um, and over again in the Old Testament, Christ or Messiah or anointed one is, is given as the title of the king who God says is going to rule forever. Uh, it's the anointed one because the kings in the Old Testament were all anointed with oil by a prophet. Um, that was the true point at which they took power as the king, as a sign of the Holy Spirit was going to be with him. It was the sign of becoming the king. Uh, even our queen, Queen Elizabeth, uh, she was anointed with oil by the Archbishop of Canterbury at her coronation. You can go and watch the coronation on YouTube video, but at the point where the Archbishop of Canterbury goes to do it, it blanks out and the commentator says, this is too holy a moment to be just filmed for the world to see. Because this is the true moment when she becomes queen. Not when she's got a crown placed on her head, but when she's anointed with oil uh, by God's representative. There you go. Um, so when you see the word Christ, it's just a title meaning king. And one of the clearest prophecies about the Christ who is to come is in Psalm 2 that we read earlier. It was written as kind of a coronation song about this king that they would sing when the king took the throne, which is a bit strange because it's a song that begins with the whole world rejecting God and his king, uh, defying their right to rule. How does it start? Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one, against his Christ, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. Yeah? So 
God and his king that he's appointed, the whole world's going, who cares? You know, we don't, we don't want to listen to them. They're shaking their puny fists at him uh, and saying, we're not going to listen. We're not going to do anything that he says. What does God think about their defiance? Well, verse 4, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. He just laughs at them. The Lord scoffs at them. He's like, what do you think you're going to do? You're rebelling against me. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. That's God's answer to the rebellion of the nations. My king has come and he's come to sit on his throne in Jerusalem. And as the song goes on, God says of this Christ, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I'll make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. Now notice two things about that. One, the Christ is also going to be known as the son of God. Uh, you are my son, today I've become your father. You see the same thing in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Um, two, God's long-term plan is to give every nation, the whole world, to his anointed one, to his Christ, as his inheritance. Now, I'm not sure what you've received as an inheritance already, uh, if you... Uh, have received one or what you're likely to receive as an inheritance one day. Uh, a house, uh, a car, uh, maybe a bit of money, an old boat, maybe that dreaded pet cat that you hate and just, uh, you know, to, uh, you're going to have to take care of it. The Christ is going to inherit all the nations of the earth. It's, it's, it's breathtaking in its scope. The whole world is his, everything. But what does that mean for the nations in rebellion and the rulers who shake in their puny fists at him as they stand and mock? Well, remember, he's going to dash them to pieces like pottery. Right? He's just going to smash them with the, his big iron scepter. I don't know if you've ever dropped a plate on your tiles in your thing and it just explodes into a million pieces. That's what the Christ is coming to do, smash the nations. Is that the picture you had of the Christ? And so if that's what's going to happen, he's not going to be mocked, he's not going to be scorned, he's going to smash them like pottery. It means there's a choice that the nations have to make, which is the rest of the song, the ending of it. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss the son or he'll be angry and you'll be destroyed in your way. Because his wrath can flare up in a moment. But blessed are all who take refuge in him. That's, that's the choice every nation faces. Submit to Jesus or be destroyed. So that's the first Old Testament character. That is the Christ. The second Old Testament figure is uh, the suffering servant. That's what he's often referred to as. And he turns up in a great long section written by the prophet Isaiah around 700 BC or so. It's in the second half of the book and there's a series of songs that are written about this guy who's simply called the servant or God's servant. Uh, he's described in chapter 42 of Isaiah as someone who's gentle and lowly of heart. He's, he's humble and meek and 
Uh, he, he's going to be kind with the struggling and the oppressed. You know, a bruised reed, he's not going to break that kind of person. He's very gentle. Uh, and he's going to bring comfort and healing. And, and the surprise is he's not just going to bring comfort and healing to Israel alone. In chapter 49, God announces, it's too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore just the tribes of Israel. I'll also make you a light for the Gentiles, that is for the nations, that my salvation might reach to the ends of the earth. Again, it's breathtaking in its scope. But how's he going to bring about this salvation to the ends of the earth? Well, the final song about the servant uh, explains it. It's in Isaiah chapter 53, very famous because it's a Good Friday reading. Uh, you've probably heard it, and even more famous because Colin Buchanan sang about it. Um, he was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. So it doesn't sound anything like the Christ, right, who's going to come and just smash the nations. This is some people are ashamed of and embarrassed about and can't look at. But surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by God and afflicted. But in fact, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. And that's because we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Sing ba ba do ba ba, Isaiah 53, 6. There you go. And that's the famous bit, isn't it, right? Okay. But that's how he saves, that's how he heals, by, by offering himself as a, as a sacrifice, a human sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. But it's interesting because the quote doesn't end there. That's the bit everyone knows uh, from all those Easter readings, but very important how it goes on. Because after this miserable, horrible death as a sacrifice for sins, what's going to happen? He's going to rise from the dead. And he's going to inherit the whole earth. He's going to inherit all the nations. But then there's a third character from the Old Testament that Matthew is going to be trying to help us understand about. And it's the most obscure one, who's referenced only in Daniel chapter 7. Someone who's known as the Son of Man or one like the Son of Man. We had the whole section read uh, where there are these four horrible, evil beasts um, that Daniel sees in a vision. He's having this horrible dream, nightmare, right, about these horrible beasts roaming around. They're bringing carnage and pain as they devour everyone in their way. I mean, one of them was picking the bones of the people he'd eaten out of his teeth, you know. Uh, there's gore everywhere, it's like, you know. And later in the chapter, um, after the bit we read, they're identified who, who these beasts are. They're, they're four kingdoms that are going to ransack the world and just run rampage and destroy everyone in their way. They're all brutal. They're Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. But in one sense, they, they just represent the, the, the nations of this world, all vying for power and struggling to, to dominate and, and, and get their own way. They're all brutal. They all think they can own the world and that no one can withstand their might and power. Uh, they all speak boastfully of their greatness and superiority. 
especially the last one of the four beasts who has that little horn that's growing out the middle of the other horns and displacing the others, who, who speaks abusive and boastful words about how great this kingdom is. But then as Daniel's freaking out because of these horrific visions of these beasts, he's given another vision in verse 9 of Daniel 7, a vision of judgment day where God, who's described as the ancient of days, is seated on his throne and he opens up the books to decide what to do. And he's supposed to deal with all the evil. But it takes a surprising twist in verse 11. I don't know if you noticed. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority but were allowed to live for a period of time. But in my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He wasn't coming to earth. He was coming to the Ancient of Days. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting kingdom that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And so again, it's this breathtaking vision, global in its scope. And we're told that all power, all dominion, all authority, all glory, all worship are going to be given to this one like a son of man, that he might rule forever with justice and righteousness and fairness, not as the kingdoms of the world do, which are evil and about their own egos and destroying people who get in the way and all about their own appetites. So you've got these three figures, and, and they might all seem like a bit of a whirlwind of Old Testament stuff. But what it means is you get to the Old Testament and you've got this bizarre situation where the Old Testament and God are promising three different characters who are all going to inherit the same world, right? Who are going to inherit all the nations. You've got the Christ who's going to come with his iron scepter and just smash the nations that he's received as an inheritance. You've got the suffering servant who's going to come, who's going to bring comfort and healing and salvation to the nations that he's receiving as an inheritance. And you've got the Son of Man who's going to rule with justice and righteousness for the good of everyone eternally overall that he receives as an inheritance. And he's going to receive all glory and honour and power and worship. And what Matthew's doing in his gospel is showing us that, in fact, it's not three different people, but it's one person, that Jesus is, is all three of those. Jesus, who's introduced in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 1 as... The Christ. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Christ. Who the voice from heaven declares in chapter 3 and again in chapter 17 at the transfiguration, you are my son. Which is a quote from Psalm 2 about the Christ. You know, the people are debating, is he the Christ, isn't he? And Peter concludes he is the Christ. And then the rest of them agree. And then they go, well, hang on, the Christ. Whoa, hang on. That's, well, that's... That's big news. But he's also the suffering servant, Matthew says, who comes to bring forgiveness and comfort and salvation by, by laying down his life as a ransom for many, only to take up his life again after he defeats death, or as he defeats death. 
who loves and cares for those in distress, who uses his power for, for blessing and good and to heal and to love people. But he announces himself that he is the son of man over and over again. He uses that term to describe himself all through the gospel. And in Matthew chapter 25 and verse 31, he says, when the son of man, he's talking about himself, when the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he'll separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And it turns out it's not good to be a goat. There are goats for sale, according to the roundabout down there. Um, don't buy one. They're going to get destroyed. Anyway, <laughs> different sort of goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left, and it's not going to go well for them. But by putting those three things or ideas or people, characters together, Matthew's showing us not just that Jesus fulfills Old Testament prophecy, which, which he does, but he's actually explaining what the whole point of reality is. He's explaining what the whole point of history is. And he's showing that Jesus is actually the one for whom everything exists and for whom everyone was made, you see. He's not just the powerful one who's got every element of this world under his control. He's not just the judge of the world who holds our destinies in his hands. He is the whole purpose of this world. It was made for him. It was made for his glory. And all of God's plans, all of God's purposes, everything to which God is driving the universe is for the praise and glory and worship of Jesus Christ. God's whole plan, the end of which he's driving all of history, is for Jesus to be exalted and honoured and praised and glorified and loved and cherished and worshipped as the Saviour and as the Lord. That is, God's goal for the whole world and for the whole of human history is to glorify his beloved Son in the midst of the people he has rescued and transformed. God's whole purpose is to gather for Jesus a people from across the world. Now, I just want to draw out some implications of that. I think I've got four, but maybe I'll have six, depending how I feel. Uh, <laughs> let's go with, yeah, well, I planned four, but I've thought of two more. Uh, well, let, 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 we'll, go the, we'll go to the six. Uh, number one is uh, a more general statement. That is, your cosmology affects everyday decisions and it affects everyday's decisions. Cosmology is kind of your view of the world and your explanation of the universe. Okay, but whatever that is shapes every decision, every little decision you make every day and it shapes all the decisions you make for all your days. That is, if, you're, if you think the world's an accident and it just kind of you know, happened and things... You, you don't have to make uh, long-term plans to you know, that there's some goal in the universe. You just exist and you do what you do and you live for the day and it affects every decision every moment, right? If you think that the world is made for Jesus and for his glory now, that's going to change every decision every day. It's going to change the everyday decisions and it's going to change every day's decisions, right? So that's the first implication. 
The second one is to think about what it means is really going on when someone becomes a disciple of Jesus and joins church. Wonderful when that happens, isn't it? You know, let's, let's hope and pray that that happens again this week as it has other weeks. You know? According to the world, what's happening when someone does that? When someone becomes a disciple of Jesus Christ? Let's call, uh, let's say there's a bloke called Brian who, I don't know, Tuesday this week gives his life to Jesus and comes and joins our church. The world would say what's happening is that Brian is turning to religion and spirituality to fulfil certain needs in his life, right? Uh, Personal needs that he's got for meaning, for belonging, for comfort, for certainty, uh, maybe needs to be the, the best possible version of himself and he thinks this is the way it's going to happen uh, and the world might agree or disagree that that is the good way to do it, but that's what they think he's doing. He's, he's done it to improve his life in some way. Uh, I was down in Canberra a couple of weeks ago. I drove down at 5am to go to a board game convention on the public holiday and uh, I met a game designer at one of the booths uh, who we got talking where are you from? He's from Wungo, I'm from Sydney. Uh, I'm a, what do you do? I'm a, I'm a minister of religion, you know, of Anken, uh, Christian. Uh, he said, oh, I'm an atheist. But my, but my dad is a lay preacher at his church. Uh, I said, oh, how do, you, how do you get on with dad? He said, I love my dad. In fact, I, I love the fact that he's a Christian, even though I'm an atheist. I said, why? Because surely you're saying he, he believes nonsense and lies. And he said, no, 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 no. I, no, um, Christianity is really good for people. Uh, and my dad is a more loving man because he's become a Christian. It's really, it's really excellent. Yeah, I'm not like those angry atheists who think it's just stupid and dumb and, and wrong and everyone should run from Christianity like the plague. I mean, it is wrong, but it does good for people. It's doing good for my dad. I love it. Um, like, you, anyway, your dad's living a lie in your view, right? <laughs> That's weird. Anyway. But that's, that's what the world thinks is going on. But that's not really what's going on. The liberal church thinks pretty much the same way as the world. That Christianity is really just, in the end, a self-improvement program. And that what Brian is doing in becoming a, a Christian is, is joining a great club, a really good club, like, yeah, the best one going, but that's really going to help him be a better and more loving man and a more productive member of society. And we might say, of course it's not just that. You know, there's more to Christianity than just improving our morals and our self-esteem. Brian's getting something, lots of things, much better and much more valuable than that. Hey, what's Brian getting out of becoming Christian? You tell me. There you go. What, what things, what's he getting? He's getting eternal life. I heard something, yeah, yep, yeah, that's, that's definitely a benefit. <laughs> Fantastic, yep, yeah, and the converse, he's escaping the fires of hell. Uh, someone say something else. Salvation. Spiritually fed. Yeah, he's getting spiritually fed. Yep. Joining a great family. That's a great benefit, isn't it? Especially if he joins this one. Man, well, look at yourselves. I mean, you must want to give yourself a warm hug at morning tea, don't you? So, you know, you get, church is a great benefit, isn't it, to someone? you cared for and prayed for and looked after and loved and yeah. Yeah, he's getting a personal relationship with God. 
That's, that's an amazing thing, right? It's not just self-help and morals and self-esteem, is it? He, he's getting a relationship that gives him salvation and peace with God now, that gets him into heaven when he dies and out of hell, and, and he gets this family that's going to care for him and pray for him and be with him through thick and thin. And while all of that is true, I'm not saying that's not true, that's all true, there's actually something deeper that's going on in reality. Because when you, when you zoom out and you look at what's happening to Brian um, from sort of an eternal perspective, from God's perspective, it's not just about Brian. In fact, it's not even primarily about Brian. What's happening amazingly remarkably is that God is continually continuing to move all of history, in this case one little fragment of history that is Brian, towards its final goal. With Brian coming to Jesus, God's laying one more brick in an eternal spiritual temple that's founded on Jesus and is glorifying to Christ in 1 Peter chapter 2. Jesus is building his church, Matthew 16. He's building his congregation, his assembly, he's, he's, he's gathering in his people that to that great gathering of redeemed humanity is one day going to crowd around him in the new heavens and new earth. And he's doing it one Brian at a time. But there's a third implication if Jesus' glory is about what the whole of human history is for. It says something about our own hopes and dreams and aspirations and therefore something about what our long-term goals in life should and shouldn't be. Uh, there's a Colin Buchanan song that my kids love because they love Jesus Rocks the World. That's the album it's on. Um, and it's a song about a couple who go into early retirement and they have a beautiful house by a beautiful beach and they have a beautiful boat. That's the kind of voice he talks in. And they play golf and tennis. And what they really love to spend the majority of their time doing is collecting shells. And the song goes, Now picture them before Jesus on the great day of judgment. And they each say to him, Look, Lord, here's my shells. And he says, Shells, smells. It's what you do for God that counts. Don't waste your life. For you are not your own. You were bought. You are not your own. You were bought. You are not your own. You were bought at a great price, Jesus' perfect sacrifice. So in your body, glorify the Lord. And, and, and Colin's talking about that eternal reality, isn't it? Isn't he? It's in your body, in your life, spend it glorifying the Lord. How are you going to do that? Well, you do it by being someone who, whatever you are doing, wherever you are, is on about his business rather than your own. And his business happens to be bringing everyone under the lordship of Jesus Christ. That's what he's doing. A fourth implication is he's not primarily doing anything in our lives for, for our glory and good. 
We might think we know what God ought to do in our lives, but actually sometimes it's suffering and weakness God's going to bring us in order to do the real work. And you might think of Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, who's given a thorn in his flesh to keep him from becoming conceited. And he begs God three times to take it away, whatever the thing is, it's horrible. Uh, and God says, no, because my power is made perfect in weakness. Naturally, he's more equipped and better to do the work that God's called him to do and to glorify God because he's weak, right? Because Jesus is on about Jesus' glory, A fifth implication, there's a twist to all of this, and it seems completely paradoxical to the world, and it might seem paradoxical to you. The twist is this, that you cannot and you will not find true joy and satisfaction in life any other way than by living for Jesus. If the universe is made for Jesus and the whole of God's plan is driving towards him being glorified as the all-surpassing, all-majestic, beautiful, magnificent one, then it's Jesus Christ, not our comfort nor our dreams, that can be the all, only true, all-satisfying and eternal treasure. And because of that, in the words of John Piper, an American preacher, living for Jesus' glory is the source and the sum of all, all full and lasting joy. Because he's never going to disappoint. He's never going away. He, he's what this world exists for. And so let him be your all in all. I mean, he's really the only one who can be. He's the only one who's big enough. Have you been captured by Jesus? Is your, is your heart with him? Does he just drive your vision of life and reality and purpose? And so six and finally, if you're going to have a long-term plan in this world, and you might have lots and it's wise to do so, but if you're just going to have one or one that's greater than any other, make your long-term plan to be the best disciple-maker of others under God that you can possibly be. Make that your long-term, make it your short-term plan as well, right? Make it your medium-term plan, make it the long-term plan to be the best disciple-maker of others under God that you can possibly be. Because that's going to change every decision you make and what you pursue and get trained in and equipped for and pray for and beg God for and make that your long-term plan because that's his long-term plan for the world because it's his and it's all his inheritance father these are big thoughts for a sunday morning and father most of us me included have to get over our own sense of glory and worth that we want the world to live for us and we pray that you would forgive us for that and we pray that we would set our sights on jesus and on making him the glorious one, the one that everyone sees and marvels in wonder at and loves because the whole world is his. It's his inheritance. We long for that day when there will be peace, when the, the, the beasts of this world are destroyed, when he reigns. But we realise that it will all be caught up in his judgment for that to happen. And so, Father, we pray... 
hesitantly for his coming, uh, but we pray that it will happen. But even more, that he'll be glorified in the lives of every single person around us. We ask, please, that you would help us to make our long-term plans to be the best disciple makers that we can possibly be under you, that we might pray for and help and help understand people take the next step with you, whatever that might happen to be, that you might bless them and save them for Jesus' glory. Amen.